Well, back today to Isaiah chapter 49, the second of the four servant songs. And we will complete our examination of this one, having only looked at the beginning of it last Lord's Day. And of course, the week before that, we examined the first song in Isaiah chapter 42. These four songs, as they're called, servant songs, included in the prophecy of Isaiah, all speak of the coming of Jesus Christ. And all of them portray him as a servant, the servant of Jehovah. And all of them also portray him as successful in his work, though there are great difficulties and obstacles that attempt to thwart him, but nevertheless are unable to do so. And so having examined the words of the servant in verses four through, or one through four last Sunday, Today we want to take up the words of the servant's master, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, who is the master of this servant. And here's what we shall see. We'll see the servant's master speaks in this way. The Lord speaks indirectly in verse 5. The Lord speaks expansively in verse 6. The Lord speaks paradoxically in verse 7. He speaks encouragingly in verses 8 through 11. And the Lord speaks insightfully in verse 12. And we'll conclude also with verse 13 at that point. The Lord speaks in verse 5, but he really speaks indirectly. For we read, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So we recognize that it's still the servant who is speaking here, but he's, he's introducing the words of the Lord who's going to speak next. But the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, my God shall be my strength. So some commentators include verse 5 with the words of the servant, and you can see why. But others look at this as the beginning of the words of the servant's master, because that's what the servant says, the Lord speaks. But he doesn't really start quoting the words of the master until we get to verse 6. But in verse 5, the master, that is God's words, are introduced and that introduces the next section, after the section that has the words of the servant himself. And in this introduction of verse 5, he briefly reviews some of the things that he said in the first four verses about the mission that the Lord has given to his servant. And so he tells us several things about the activities of the servant that have been assigned to him by the Lord. His purpose is to utilize a man. He speaks of the incarnation here, who formed me, the, Lord's, the Lord says, the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And so whatever it is that is being assigned to the servant, a human nature is necessary for him to carry out this mission. And so that mission is described briefly. His mission will involve the incarnation. A human nature acquired because a human nature is required. His mission will be to gather or regather Israel. And yet that turns into a little different direction as the, as the section unfolds. But there is this statement at the beginning. It is the Lord's purpose for his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. The question, of course, in looking at those words, is Isaiah speaking for God, indicating a geographical regathering of the nation, the physical seed of Abraham in this regathering? And if you looked only at the statement in verse 5, you might be inclined to think so. It's interesting how all of us tend to uh, interpret the words of Scripture in the light of, of uh, previous concepts that we have, have embraced. 
And so some looking at that would be quite sure that this is a promise, that the servant of the Jehovah is going to regather physically the people of Israel who are scattered geographically across the world and bring them back to a central location. And I wouldn't say that these words rule that out, but I would say that's obviously not what he has in mind. It really doesn't speak to that. It doesn't seem to me. So is this a geographical ga gathering or is this a spiritual gathering? And the next verse, I think, supplies the answer. Because it goes on to say, indeed, he says, this is the Lord speaking to the servant, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So along with the regathering of Israel, there's also going to be a great gathering of Gentiles, and these things are aligned together as the expanded mission of the servant. And therefore, that to me seems to indicate that he's talking about a spiritual regathering. He's talking about doing something in the hearts of physical descendants of Abraham, which will bring them in submission and faith to the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at the same time, he's going to do something in the hearts of Gentiles, which will accomplish the same purpose. And it takes the same work of God in order to do that. And this work is assigned to the servant of Jehovah. And we're also told in verse 5 that God has purposed to honor his servant. I, the servant says, shall be glorious. Now, previously in verse 3, we were told that the servant will bring glory and honor to the Lord, his master. Now we are told that the master will in turn bring honor and glory to the servant. And we are reminded once again, and many of these things that are said in verse 4 are a condensation or a summary of the things that were said earlier in the chapter. But we are reminded again that it is God's purpose to enable his servant to be able to do all these things. He described his, his power and authority earlier as being like a sword and like an arrow. You remember uh, verse 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft or a, uh, an arrow, the shaft of an arrow. And in his quiver, he has hidden me. And those are figures of speech. One of them's a simile and one's a metaphor. I had to go back and remind myself of those uh, particular categories. But when you have, uh, remember from, from school days, when you have a comparison that uses like or as, that's a simile. And when you have another comparison that does not say like or as, we call that a metaphor. And we used to joke in school, as I'm sure you did, and say, what's a metaphor? And we'd say to put the cows in. And, uh, <laughs> but that's not the kind of metaphor that we're talking about here. Uh, but a simile, his words shall be like, there's that like, his words shall be like a sword. He's going to have powerful words that have a powerful effect, a cutting effect, effect, a conquering effect upon those that this servant uh, goes forth to conquer. And his words will be an arrow here. In fact, actually, it says the servant shall be an arrow. He'll be able to accomplish at a distance what he cannot accomplish by his physical words spoken in his physical location. And so we previously been told about this power that the Lord is giving to his servant. But here, in the words of verse 5, we are reminded that this power comes from his master. It comes from Jehovah. It comes from the Lord. And we're just plunged into this mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity. You can't get away from it. Even in Isaiah's prophecy that doesn't spell it out quite as clearly as we have it in the New Testament, you see all of the contours of this even now. Uh, this servant is mighty and powerful. This servant speaks the word of God, powerful word of God. And yet he is dependent upon his 
master in order to be able to do these things. And so we see that in his humanity, Jesus Christ was dependent upon his heavenly father. But he was also the God-man. And in his deity, he had as much power. He had the power of his heavenly father. Mystery of mysteries, of course. But anyway, that's the Lord speaking indirectly in that he speaks and in these words, he indirectly tells us things about his relationship to God Almighty. But now in verse 6, and we've already touched upon it, but in verse 6 we have what I've called the Lord speaks expansively. Now he takes what he's already told us about the mission of the servant to do something for the nation of Israel, and he expands it to a worldwide mission. Again, looking at verse 6. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I had a hard time every time I read that. My eyes wanted to turn that into a question. Is it too small a thing? But that's not what it is. It's a statement. It is too small a task for you, my servant, to only restore Israel. I've got something a lot bigger than that in mind for you. I am adding to that your mission to restore the entire world. Your mission goes to the ends of the earth. A Jewish restoration is too small for a servant that's as great as this servant. A worldwide restoration is indicated. I will also, in addition to the gathering of Israel, give you a mission to the Gentiles. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. That is to enable them to see. Gentiles like Jews until God uh, opens their their understanding to receive the truth as it has been given them in his word by, by the prophets and in the scriptures. But all men, Gentiles and Jews, are in darkness, but the Gentiles were particularly in darkness and are commonly described in scripture as dwelling in utter darkness because not only do they have the darkness that all men have in their Adamic state and inability to understand spiritual truth, to see the light of truth, but they don't even have the light available to them. The Jews have God's word. The Jews have the prophets. The Jews have the scriptures. The Gentiles are out in utter darkness with no divine revelation. How can there be any hope for them to come to the light? Ah, but this servant can do it. He's such a great servant, he's able to do that. He can not only use the word that has been given to Israel to bring light to their darkened souls, but he can bring light to the darkened souls of Gentiles who at this point don't even have his word. He's got quite a mission, but he's certainly capable of doing that task. A light to the Gentiles, he's, he's able to accomplish salvation. In fact, if you'll notice the words exactly and carefully, it's not only that he shall accomplish salvation to the ends of the earth, but here we are told that he is salvation, that you, should, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And again, we find language like that in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is salvation. He not only accomplishes salvation, but he is salvation. He is very salvation itself. To be saved is to know God and to know his son, this one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's who he is. And so the Lord speaks expansively about the mission of his servant in verse 6. But then he speaks in verse 7 in what I have called a paradoxical manner. The Lord speaks paradoxically when he says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, since the word nation there is singular, I take that to be the nation of Israel, but man in general despises him, the nation of Israel in, particularly, in particular abhors him. He is considered a servant to the rulers, he's lowly, just like a servant, as far as the 
the ruling class, the elite of this world, the movers and the shakers of this world are concerned. This one, who we know, is the servant of Almighty God and in fact came, is Almighty God and came from heaven to accomplish this, this purpose, is lowly. He is a servant. He is humble. He is despised. And of course we read other statements just like that in both Old and New Testament. The fourth servant psalm, the most familiar one in Isaiah 53, tells us he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised and we esteemed him not. And it goes on from there. But this one condenses it all into half of a verse. He is the one whom man despises, the one whom the nations abhor, the one who is a servant to rulers, but then suddenly something changes. Still speaking about this same one, kings shall see and arise, that is, stand in honor and respect to him. Princes also shall worship, or literally bow down to him, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. So what is the paradox of which I speak in verse 7. Well, it is this, Jehovah's servant is despised. Check, that's true. But it is this, Jehovah's servant is exalted. Check that box, that's also true. In one, on one hand, in, in many aspects of his coming, he is lowly, infant, Lowly, infant, holy, we sing. And we know that. That's, that's emphasized in the birth of the Savior and then in the life of our Lord and the fact that he came from an unimpressive area of Israel. Can any good thing come out of Galilee? And the fact that he did not have the credentials that were expected of rabbis in his day. And on and on it goes. So many things about him were completely lowly. He was a, a nobody as far as the, some, the people who think themselves to be somebodies in this world, as, they, as far as they are concerned, he is a nobody, but before all is said and done, they're all going to be standing before him with utter respect and honor. They're going to be bowing down before him in worship. Now, how can that be true? Both of those things be true of the same one, the same servant. He is despised, yes. He is exalted, yes. His exaltation and his humiliation are indicated here. And both conditions are equally true. And both of those conditions are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a stumbling block to many. It was a great stumbling block to the Jews. But that is exactly his condition. That passage in, in Philippians 2, it's just one of the most stunning passages in all the Bible, where Paul almost as an aside, throws in a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's teaching us is to be humble, to be meek, to be loving toward others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being God, that's what it means, being in the form of God, who was in fact God Almighty, did not take his deity as something to hold on to and not be willing to have it veiled in any way who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't taking anything that didn't belong to him to um, understand that according to one particular translation of those words. But made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. That in itself was a great, great uh, humiliation, a great humbling of one who is in fact eternal God, made in the likeness of man. And being in fashion as a man, he humbled himself further. Not an exalted man, a lowly man. He humbled himself and became obedient. He was submissive to his master, the Lord God, his father. Became obedient to death. Why did he go to the cross? Well, one answer to that question is because the father told him that that was the father's will. That was the father's purpose. And he humbly and obediently submitted to that. 
He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the most shameful death of that time. But suddenly everything turns in the next verse, doesn't it? Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, knees shall bow. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can this be that one, this same one, can be on the one hand so lowly and on the other hand so exalted? It's a great paradox, but it's a great truth. Paradoxes are not pitting together two things that cannot be reconciled. It is putting beside, side by side two things that at first seem to be contradictory, but if you will take the time to study them through, you'll find out they are not contradictory. In fact, in that seeming contradiction, you find more truth than you would understand if you hadn't had to wrestle with the seeming contradiction. And that's what we have here. Prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Christ. Speaking the words of the Lord God Almighty, he says of his servant, on the one hand, he's going to be the lowliest of the low. On the other hand, he's going to be the highest of the high. And so the Lord speaks paradoxically, verse 7. Then over the next several verses, the Lord speaks encouragingly. And I'll have to cover these fairly quickly. He speaks encouragingly when he restates in verse 8 that... Jehovah, God, is going to enable this servant of his, verse, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit it and desolate, uh, inherit the desolate heritages. Jehovah will enable his servant to accomplish his assigned task. The task seems impossible, and it would be for a mere man. But the task seems impossible for any servant, but not a servant who is empowered by Almighty God. And God promises to empower his servant to accomplish this impossible task. God promises in verse 8 to protect his servant from all Successful opposition. In other words, none of the opposition will be successful against him. I will preserve you. Yes, you will have more opposition than anybody has ever had in this world in trying to serve the Lord God. But none of that opposition shall succeed. I will preserve you. I will enable this servant, says Jehovah, to become the mediator of a new covenant. That, of course, needs to be elaborated on greatly, which we don't have time for today. But it is, it is the ushering in the new covenant that also expands God's saving purposes to the ends of the earth. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that centered on national Israel, didn't it? But here comes the promised Messiah, the, the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah from Israel, the, the one promised to Abraham, the one from the line of David, here he comes, the Jewish Messiah. And what does he do? He inaugurates a new covenant with his disciples around the Passover table, hours before his crucifixion, and raises that cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new covenant. And as he describes the new covenant, we realize this new covenant is a covenant that's not just made with Israel, it's made with peoples all over the world, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so here we read that Jehovah enables his servant to become the mediator of a new covenant, a worldwide covenant, to restore the world to its original condition, and even better, <laughs> I started to say to restore the world to its original perfection, and indeed, we, I think, accurately for the most part describe the world that Adam and Eve lived in before the fall as a perfect world and yet there was something in that original creation that was that, that was a weakness and what was that well that was 
the ability and inclination in Adam and Eve to disbelieve God and to believe a lie, and that's and when they went down that route, that's why they plunged the world into sin. What's going to happen when all is said and done, when the servant has finished his task and has restored the world to its original condition, and all the redeemed people of God are brought to their final glorification, and all that refuse to bow the knee are going to be put us put apart from from uh, the Lord's um, glorious presence forever and forever. What's going to be different then? What's going to be different then is that none of those of us, we redeem people who are entirely sanctified, will be able to sin. That will be over. We won't want to, but that's not an option anymore. With Adam, it was an option. And he took that option. With us, it's true, true that we don't have an option not to sin. Not in the sense that we can't consider an individual temptation, say yes or no to it. But there's no human being of the 8 billion people in all the world who has ever managed to not sin. It's impossible for us in our present fallen condition to not sin. You would think, I didn't mean to get into this, but I'll take a side detour for us for a moment people who don't accept what the Bible teaches about the true condition of man born into this world in a fallen condition already sinfully depraved there there are a lot of people in this world that believe in the essential goodness of man and basically believe that every person is born into this world good and the only reason why every person doesn't continue to be good is because they're influenced by the bad people around them. All right, let's just take somebody from the womb and isolate them from everybody else and we'll have a perfect person that never sins because they'll never have a sinful influence upon them, right? Wrong. Because that theory is wrong. Because sin doesn't come from the outside. It may be encouraged. It is encouraged by others around us. But sin comes from within. It's in the heart of man. We go astray from the womb, speaking lies. And so, there's no essential goodness in anyone. We all are essentially bad. We're essentially sinners. Oh, how we need rescue. We, are, we, we go astray from the beginning. And we need divine rescue. But, Jehovah will enable his servant to restore this whole creation to a pre-Adamic fall perfection and even a greater perfection. All right. So Jehovah enables his servant, verse 8. But not only his servant, he does more, and he must if this is going to work. Jehovah enables helpless sinners, verse 9. That you may say to the prisoners... Go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastors shall be on all desolate heights. What is this? Well, the Jehovah enables prisoners who are bound by sin to be made free. We can't free ourselves. We're, we're enslaved to sin. What hope is there? Ah, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood of the Lamb. He's able to free us. He's able to turn the prisoners free. He can do that. And Jehovah enables the servant to be able to accomplish that because he is going to work in the hearts of sinners to free them from their imprisonment, their enslavement to sin. And furthermore, people engulfed in darkness are brought into the light. When you're engulfed in darkness, you live in darkness, you, you can't see truth, you can't see spiritual things, you can't truly see your own sinful condition, you can't really see to appreciate the work of Christ in salvation. You're, you're blind to all of that, but Jehovah says, I'm going to go to people like that and enable them to see. I'm going to... Go to the prisoners and say, go forth. 
I will say to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. That is, step out of darkness into the light. Jehovah promises to do that. The next few phrases are a metaphorical description that people starving for truth will be fully satisfied by the servant's master, Jehovah. These are two metaphors for abundant provision that will be given to them. They shall feed along the roads, and their pasture shall be on all desolate heights. There's not going to be any lack of, and this is referring to spiritual nourishment. There's not going to be any lack of spiritual nourishment to those who need it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Our souls live by the word of God. Our souls live by spiritual nourishment. We need it. We must have it if we are going to live unto God. And God says, I'll provide it in abundance. I'll, I'll make places that look like they couldn't even provide food. I'll make them places of nourishment for the souls of those who have been freed from enslavement and have been brought into the light. Jehovah enables his servant, verse 8. Jehovah, Jehovah enables helpless sinners, verse 9. And Jehovah provides for his people, verse 10. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them, who's that? That's God. Who's he have mercy on? Helpless sinners that he has poured out his grace, his mercy upon, his undeserved mercy. He who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. It's extending the the language, the metaphors that we saw in the previous verse. But now the focus is upon those that have been redeemed. The Lord loves them and the Lord is going to provide everything he needs. Spiritual nourishment provided for his people. Spiritual protection provided for his people. And faithful leadership provided for his people. They shall not be left without a shepherd. They shall not be left without under shepherds. <coughs> Sometimes we see great men of God pass into eternity and we say wow we're in trouble now um, there'll never be another one like so and so you fill in the blank and then I've lived long enough to see this happen you know suddenly I become aware of somebody who has a slowly building powerful ministry that I wasn't aware of where did he come from well God raised him up he has been raising him up all along and we don't need to worry. It's not up to us. You know, we don't have to wring our hands and say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Where are going to be the preachers? Where are going to be the missionaries? We, we have a concern for that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. We should pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. But let's not forget that Jehovah's servant has promised to provide the leaders that are needed for his people to have under shepherds to, to feed them and to lead them and to guide them and to protect them. He, the last phrase of verse 10, he will guide them. He's not going to leave his people without what they need. Jehovah provides for his people. And then the final statement in this encouraging section is that Jehovah prepares a way for his people. Verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. We're accustomed to this language about every mountain shall be, shall be what, and, and every valley shall be filled from another section in Isaiah. And here we have it again in a, in a different passage, one that's not quite so familiar. But basically what this saying is saying is, yes, there are great mountains that seem to be obstacles to the people of God, and particularly to their making progress successfully all the way home to heaven. But I, the Lord God, tell you what I will do. If a mountain's in your way and needs to be removed, needs to be flattened, I'll flatten it. That mountain will turn into a road for you. And you say, this road that I'm trying to travel, it's, it's rough and it's it's um, down in the valley and uh, says the Lord God I'll make it into a highway I hadn't really thought about this before why do we call highways 
highways? Well, I would assume it's because they always build up a roadbed above the surrounding area in order to make it a nice smooth highway. Have you noticed that? The, uh, if you go off the shoulder, you're going to go down almost inevitably because the roadbed is built up to make it smooth. That's what we see in, in our world in uh, physical highways. God says, that's what I do to the paths upon which I lead my people. Is there a mountain in the way? I'll flatten it. Is there a rough highway that's almost impossible to navigate? I will build it up and make it into a smooth highway. When I was thinking about this verse, the Lord brought back to my mind a chorus that I sang as a boy. I wonder if any of you sang, Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Any of you know that? Any of you sing that? A few hands, very few. Well, that's what happens to songs. They come into favor, they leave. But God's word never leaves. God's promises never leave. God builds highways where it seems to be impossible. God flattens mountains where they're in the way Jehovah prepares a way for his people and then finally we read in verse 12 the Lord speaks insightfully this is really a reiteration of what he said but let's look at it again in verse 12 surely these shall come from afar who well the people that are God's people the people to whom these promises are made the people for whom these provisions are provided the people who have been brought out of darkness into light Surely these shall come from afar. Look, this is amazing. Look, those from the north and from the west and those from the land of Sinem. Nobody seems to know exactly where Sinem is, but most um, commentators that I read place it in the south of Egypt or on down into Ethiopia, in other words, from the south. So now you've got a third direction. Look from the north, look from the west, look from the south. And I think it's appropriate for our minds to just go ahead and fill in east. In other words, from every part of the globe, from every part of the world, God is going to gather together his people. A worldwide gathering shall come from afar, from the north and the west and the south and the east. An international gathering is what the Lord is going to bring. And he's, he's teaching us something here. The people who were listening to the words of Isaiah when he spoke them were Jews, and they had a hard time thinking beyond Israel. We are the promised people. We are the favored people. We are the people of salvation. We are the ones that will represent Jehovah in this world. And Isaiah the prophet says, you're thinking too small. Look, 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 behold, people are going to come from all over the world and are going to join you as worshipers of Jehovah. It'll be an international gathering. And that Therefore, all that has been spoken here is a cause for great rejoicing. And now Isaiah himself, as it were, takes up the pen or takes up the trumpet. And he proclaims in verse 13, Sing, O heavens! Such wonderful things need to be acclaimed in praise and song. Be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains! For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his Afflicted. Now, let's apply some of these things. This wonderful passage can be applied to Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came to fulfill this prophecy. It can certainly be applied to the Christmas season and what we are celebrating now, and it can be applied to ourselves. Let's look at some ways. This does help us with the mystery of the Incarnation. Evidently, for God to accomplish salvation among fallen men and women, it was necessary to accomplish that through the work of another man, another human being. 
someone of our race, of our nature, in order to accomplish that. But the problem is, in all the however many billions of people were in the world at the time Isaiah spoke, if they'd even reached a billion by that time, but indeed, in the 2,000 years since then, and all of the, what, 8 billion people that are living in this world today, nobody can qualify to be the rescuer, to be the redeemer, because everyone is a sinner. So on the one hand, we've got to have a human rescuer. On the other hand, we don't have a qualified rescuer. What is the answer? Well, the answer is God became man to supply a qualified redeemer for men. And that's the babe in the manger that we sing about this time of year. God brought him. The mystery of the incarnation was necessary to redeem sinners. We secondly learn something here about the nature of salvation. And this in particular, the need for salvation is not just a Jewish need, it is a, a, a universal need, it's an international need. Because sin is not a Jewish issue only, it is a international issue, it applies to all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize that in the book of Romans, doesn't he? First he shows how Gentiles are sinners, then he shows how Jews are sinners too, and then he concludes it by saying, we're all sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's word condemns us all, it, it includes us all under sin. We've got to start there. The message of the gospel, the message of the good news, must begin with the bad news. If you're not willing to talk about the bad news, you really can't expect people to understand and appreciate the good news. Until people understand how sinful they are and feel the weight of their sin, the conviction of their sin, the hopelessness of their sin, the condemnation of their sin, they're not going to be looking to, for a savior. They're not going to be looking to Christ for salvation. And so the nature of salvation is it's a universal salvation because it's a universal need. That universal need requires a universal savior, not just a Jewish Messiah. And when that universal savior who came from the Jewish line, but nevertheless came not just for the seed of Abraham, the physical seed of Abraham, but for all nations, and God promised that from the beginning to Abraham, didn't he? And you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And when God concludes his work with this redeemer to all the world, what he has created is a universal body. Not a body of Jews alone, but a universal body, the church. Made up of Jews and Gentiles. A common body where Gentiles have been grafted into the olive tree. Remember that from a few weeks ago? And yes, I, I believe that the time is coming when there's going to be a great work of revival among God's physical people, the Jews, before the Lord returns. But this is, the whole emphasis here is upon there's something bigger, something greater, something grander, than what God has talked about in terms of Israel, the promises that are made to Israel. That's just a small part, but this servant is too great to be confined to that. He's going to reach out and encompass Gentiles from all over the world, and he's going to encompass them all in the same body. We call that the church. As Jesus said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, I will bring, I cannot fail to bring. But what if they don't want him to? Don't worry about that. Jehovah knows how to work in hearts to, to change that. And he will have a host of people from all over the world who gladly embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their sins. Well, here's a third lesson. And that is the nature of God's working. We need to be reminded of this again and again. Although God is omnipotent, and that means all-powerful, and when we think of power, we usually think of strong power that crushes, 
dynamite, dunamis power. But although God is omnipotent, he seems to be best glorified when he works in an unassuming manner. Different from human wisdom, different from human concepts of power, different from human mechanisms of force. We will have to have big weapons, big missiles, big armies, big uh, bombs in order to be powerful. Uh, God is so powerful, he can do it through little ways and still accomplish, and that brings him great honor. Quiet, secret invasions. Yes, it is, an, it is a, a battle. It is a, a, a fight. It is a, a war. There are invasions, but what is it? It's the quiet invasion of his irresistible Holy Spirit into hearts to change and bring people to life. And in this way, all throughout these last 2,000 years, Satan's kingdom has been plundered and gradually and systematically destroyed while Satan's citizens are largely oblivious of what's going on. Doesn't look big to them, doesn't look powerful to them, doesn't look like any big thing to them. Uh, just wait and watch and see what God is doing. Not only did the Messiah come in that way, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And so God works in human hearts. The rescue of the nature of his heaven, right? Isn't that what the song says? The song has it right. While Satan's citizens are largely oblivious as to what's going on in this world around them, God is powerfully but largely secretly, except to those who have spiritualized to see it, saving souls all over the world and robbing Satan of citizens from his kingdom and his kingdom is being destroyed and he doesn't even know it or he may but most of his citizens don't and we need to learn that we as Christians don't advance the cause of Christ by in some way being able to impress the world we'll show them how good we are we'll show them how big we are we'll show them how impressive we are We'll show them we can have big, big churches and we can have big, big this and big, big that. That'll, that'll show them. That'll win them over. That'll impress them. No. No. But we advance the kingdom of Christ by utilizing the word of God alone. We must trust the power and sufficiency of God's word. We've got to trust it. It is a powerful sword coming out of the mouth of Jehovah's messenger. It is a powerful arrow that is designed to accomplish God's work. But it's something that the world can't even imagine that it has any usefulness whatsoever. The Bible, ha, what's that? I'll tell you what it is. It is a powerful, 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 quiet force that is going throughout the world and accomplishing God's eternal purposes and destroying Satan's kingdom. That's what it is. And then this, number four, finally. The lesson that exaltation follows humiliation. The world says the way to, exalt your, to get exalted is to exalt yourself, to scheme, to manipulate, to undercut, to maneuver your way into positions of influence, and keep working in that matter, manner as long as you can. You achieve one position of influence and you work for a higher one. If you get elected to uh, Congress, then maybe you can run for president. That sort of thing. It happens in the business world. It happens everywhere. But God's way of exaltation is this. Humble yourselves. Become a servant. Serve faithfully and joyfully wherever God puts you. Wait for God to exalt you in his own time and way. Become a servant and trust God to make you a ruler. He's promised to. We will rule and reign with Christ someday. And he exalts his people in this world with influence if it, if it suits his purposes and will honor him in doing so. But recognize that in God's way of doing things, deprivation comes before reward. Look at the lowliness of his servant. Dishonor 
comes before honor. If you're not willing to take the dishonor, then don't expect the honor. If you're not willing to accept the deprivation that comes with being a follower of Christ, then don't expect the reward. And Christ is the example of that. And Christ is the teacher of that. He, he taught, taught us that. He who would be great among you, what? Let him become the servant of all. It's entirely opposite of the way we normally think. It's entirely opposite of the way the world thinks. But this is God's way. Exaltation follows humiliation. And so this, for you today, some of you are here, no doubt, outside of Christ. You must humble yourself. If you're not willing to humble yourself, to own yourself a sinner, to recognize your bad condition, not your good condition, to relinquish the good things you think about yourself and to recognize that you are nothing worthy of anything apart from God and His grace, then there's no hope for you in salvation. It's, it's more than just praying a little prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. There must be this humbling, contrite, repentant spirit that's willing to take the low place, willing to acknowledge that you deserve to go to hell, and if God sends you there, he'll be just in doing so. And when you get to that place, then if you'll cast yourself upon the Lord, he will never, never, cast you out. But you've got to humble yourself first to come to Christ. And after you become a Christian, you must humble yourself in order to serve Christ effectively. I'm going to maneuver up to a bigger pulpit. I'm going to maneuver up to a bigger, bigger position. I'm going to maneuver up to big things. You may get to heaven and say, I'm sorry, I don't have any reward for you. You didn't do it my way. You may have impressed the world, but you didn't do it my way. My rewards are for faithful servants who are willing to do things my way, humbly, without, without honoring themselves and pushing themselves into positions of influence. That's the world's way. But when you serve my way, then, oh then, there's great reward. Well, enough said, let's bow. Father, how grateful we are for your word and for the ministrations of your spirit and for the coming of your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become the Savior of sinful men. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.